So now that we've had a moment to digest the results of the election, we are back to our regular content here on Depolarize. And we've got two serious experts in a row this week and next week. Next week, we have Robert P. Jones, CEO of Public Religion Research Institute. I recorded that interview with him at the conference I was at last week, and it was awesome. And today we have another incredible treat. Professor Hirschman is so humble that I couldn't really get him to explain how big of a deal he is. Now, I happen to know his son, Andy. So I had Andy record an intro about his dad so we can actually know what we're dealing with. So here's Andy introducing his dad. Charles Hirschman has spent a lifetime of public service. He's taught at Duke, Cornell, and for the past more than 20 years at the University of Washington, Seattle. He's been the president of the Population Association of America. He's been a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He spearheaded the census in Vietnam. He's been quoted in the New York Times. He's spoken at Homeland Security on immigration issues. His list of achievements go on and on and on. I'm proud to call him my dad. I am here with Dr. Charles Hirschman, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Washington here in Seattle. Charles, tell us a little bit more about your background. Okay, I grew up in the Midwest in um, small small towns. Uh, I went to college, and when I graduated from college, I was thinking about what the future should be, and I decided to take a couple years off and join the Peace Corps, and went off and lived in a rural village in Malaysia for two years, and then I decided I knew what I wanted to do, which was to come back to graduate school, become a researcher. I got my PhD in 1972. I taught at Duke for nine years, Cornell at six years, and now I'm at the University of Washington. I've been here for 29 years. So we're going to talk about immigration in the mm-hmm. United States mm-hmm. primarily. Why are you qualified to talk about this? You can you let your ego soar here. Just give us a reason why we should listen to you. <laughs> well, one of the things I have made as a primary object of my study for my career is race and ethnicity, race and ethnic inequality in the United States, in Southeast Asia, other parts of the world. And about 30 years ago, immigration became one of the major issues in American society, certainly one of the issues that created race and ethnic diversity in this country. Yeah. For obvious reasons. And so my research began to get pulled in that direction. Uh, Part of it was my own interest in the topic. Um, It was also, I was asked to serve on a variety of national committees. And then um, some of my, I began to teach a course regularly at the undergraduate level on uh, immigration and ethnicity in American society. Most recently, uh, you've been on one of these national committees mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. sort of make a report. Right. Who commissioned that committee, and, and what is that report called? Well, let me give you the background on this. These were, they call them panels. They were appointed by the National Academy of Sciences. The National Academy of Sciences is a national honorific uh, society that was actually formed in uh, the 1860s under President Lincoln. He decided he wanted to have independent advice on important national priorities, um, everything from building roads or how to supply the military and a variety of things. It caught on, and it's been going for the last 150 years. There wow. are still people who are elected because they are the premier scientists in the United States into this club. I am not a member, an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences. I am of some other honorific societies, but not of that one. But a lot of, a broader cross-section of academics serve on these committees. Okay. And about four or five years ago, the National Academy of Sciences decided it wanted to have a study of immigration, particularly the integration of immigrants into American society. Uh, They had to go out and fundraise for this. They got support from some government agencies, also some from private foundations, and they got a sufficient amount of funds to do two studies. One was on the integration of immigrants into American society. The second was on the economic consequences of immigrants on the American economy. And I actually wound up serving on both of those. And one report came out a year ago, and one report just came out a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. So within the last year or so, you have been on two committees funded by the National Academy of Sciences right. to discuss... Well, let me, let me put it this way. The one panel was, how are immigrants doing in American society? Okay. The yeah. other was the impact of immigrants 
on the American economy, which meant both the wages of native-born workers and also the fiscal system, uh, basically the tax and revenue system. Do they, how much do they receive in benefits relative to what they pay in taxes? So that was Great. the economic aspect. The other was the how are immigrants doing in terms of their education, their employment, their uh, residential integration, all of these issues. All of the questions I have prepared for you are on those two topics. So good, now I'm good. very happy. Good. <laughs> so let's dive in. We're going to talk about facts here with you mm-hmm. because you know these facts and most of us don't. And mostly what we get are images that come from some politically motivated source mm-hmm. or perhaps an impassioned argument from a friend. But most of us do not have coffee sitting across the table from someone mm-hmm. who's literally writing the book for the president or whomever <laughs> on these issues. So I'm going to take advantage of that and we're going to dive in. Now, a popular ad that's been shared around a lot online this campaign season is the Trump ad, which shows migrants clamoring over a wall like ants across a log. And it's been reported that, of course, that was not shot between the border of the United States and Mexico. It was shot somewhere in the Middle East, but it's made to look like this is what's happening to your country. We need a wall mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this flow is unstoppable. What is the true situation on the ground? What are the actual numerical trends for immigration to and from the U.S.? Okay, I'm going to try to speak about this briefly, though usually when I'm teaching a course, this is something that will be several lectures. Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, try, I'll try to do it in a couple of minutes here. <laughs> Thank you. There are uh, about 40 million immigrants, foreign-born people in the United States. That's about 13% okay. of the American population. If you add their children... You know, the children of immigrants, we usually call them the second generation. Right. Um, um, that's about another um, 39 million. So you add them together, it's almost 80 million out of 320 million. One in four people who live in this country is born outside the United States or is a child of right. somebody who was born outside the United States. So this is a large, large number. Immigrants as a fraction of the total American population is about, as I mentioned before, about 12, 13%. Throughout most of American history, that number has been around has been higher, 14, 15%. Really? It went down in the 1920s because at that time we essentially barred immigration from coming to the United States. And immigration remained very, very low for about 40 years. It was reformed in the uh, 1960s as part of the, you know, the liberal uh, changes that took place in uh, civil rights and a number of other things. And okay. so the number of immigrants and the proportion of immigrants has increased in recent years. Most of these people come legally to the United States about uh, the numbers of people who are here, we call them the unauthorized. They're here without papers. Many of them come legally uh, as tourists or on other kinds of visas and educational visas, and they overstay in the visa. Some of them actually cross a border surreptitiously mostly the uh, Mexican border, but sometimes, you know, other borders as well. There are about 11 million out of the 40 million. It's about, um, you know, less than a quarter of them are here without authorization. Okay. That number has been stable. It was increasing rapidly in the 1980s and 1990s. It stabilized during the Great Recession in the early 2008, and it actually has diminished since then. So the fraction of the foreign-born population who are illegal has uh, decreased. The numbers of people coming from Mexico is actually less than it used to be a number of years ago. In fact, there's no net immigration from Mexico at the present time at all. You know, there are people who come in, people who leave, but it basically evens out. They cancel out. There are still people who come from other countries um, without authorization. It's primarily from Central America, from Asia, a tiny bit from Africa, from European countries, from Canada. (laughs) Uh, Lots of other countries come as well. So the two conclusions let me draw from this. One is that a lot of people coming from around the world is sort of part of American history. There was an interval of about 40 years from the 1920s to the 1960s when the numbers went down. But throughout the previous 150 years, immigration has always been high. We've been a frontier society and people who wanted opportunity, this is one of their primary destinations. The second is that the most immigrants are authorized, but there's a significant fraction who are here without papers. And there are reasons for that. I could talk more about it if you would like to, but that number is not increasing. In fact, it's decreasing in the last eight years. Yeah, that I read that recently, and it might mm-hmm. have been from the report that you co-authored, mm-hmm. and I was pretty struck by that number. Mm-hmm. Definitely not what I would have had been led to believe. Right. Following up on your mentioning of other nations, 
From what countries are we seeing the highest numbers of immigrants coming these days, and why are they coming? Mexico used to be the number one country. About I think about 30% of the foreign-born in the United States are from Mexico. That's our largest single group. But as I mentioned before, the numbers from Mexico have gone down dramatically. The largest countries of immigration now are China and India. Oh, uh, so Asian immigration actually now is larger than Latin American immigration to the country. So... <laughs> If you are a Trump supporter and you're frustrated, mm -hmm. it's funny that Trump has been channeling your frustration towards Mexico. Really, he should be... I mean, he's funneled it towards China in terms of saying China is taking mm -hmm. our jobs. But not only is China, quote unquote, taking our jobs, they're also coming here well, and trying to get jobs. Well... Many of the Asian immigrants, in particular, work in the high-tech sector. So yeah. they're, you know, if you go to Microsoft, you go to Silicon Valley, you go to a university, you go to a research lab, uh, you go to your doctor's office. <laughs> you yeah. know, a lot of times, um, Asian immigrants are playing very, very critical roles. Um, yeah. I mean, at the university, a lot of the professors are from Asia, from Latin America as well, and Europe as well. And many of our students are. Many of the students, if you go to the, particularly the, something like the College of Engineering or uh, the medical sciences, yeah. uh, sometimes the majority of their PhD students are from other countries. They come here sometimes to study and then go back. Sometimes they come here and they're so good, you know, we, we, we compete with other employers to keep them here. I experienced this when I was doing my undergrad, finishing my undergrad at University of Washington, where you teach. And in a lot of those classes, especially my general education classes that I was finishing up, I had a decent number of Chinese foreign exchange students in there. But what you're saying is the PhD students are coming from other nations, mm -hmm. and then they're so capable that American firms are competing with Chinese or Indian firms to hire them Correct. because we want their talent in America. Right. The foreign-born are overrepresented in almost all areas of excellence in American society. In other words, if you look at the American scientists who win Nobel Prizes, immigrants are overrepresented. If you look at those who are members of honorific groups, if you look at patenting, in technology and science yeah. and medicine, immigrants, they have a very heavy footprint. They, they, they punch above their weight, as they say, yeah. in terms of their representation, because the ones who come here are very determined. You know, the people who are normal often stay at home. Right. <laughs> it's just like you can probably think of your native-born friends. Some of them have branched off and gone to distant places to make their fortune, and that's, that's what migrants do, and that's often the way immigrants are. That's interesting because it... It shows a weird logical move at the heart of the isolationist argument, which is to say, I'll give the isolationist argument as I understand it. The world is a competitive place. It's increasingly competitive. Mm -hmm. The way that we compete is we keep our companies here and we sort of focus inward and we make sure that we're not bleeding jobs and we're not bleeding resources. But what you're saying is, the funny thing about the globalized world where international travel is easier and where one can simply apply mm -hmm. to a doctoral program if one can get in is such that you want those people coming and you want to be able to choose the ones. I mean, from pure self-interest of a nation, just mm -hmm. pure American self-interest, we want the smartest people. Just take that as a given. You want them coming. Because you want to have a chance to see what they can do. And then you want to say, all right, stay here. Patent that in America. Invent that in America. Start that genetic engineering firm in America. Right. It's, it's better, right? International competition is the norm. And so, yes, American firms are competitive with each other. They're competitive with international firms. Furthermore, you have to realize that the United States is about 5%, less than 5% of the world's population. And so if we want to sell anything, whether it's Boeing airplanes or Microsoft software or even apples <laughs> uh, from uh, East to the Cascades, the markets for these goods are primarily other countries. We have to be able to speak their languages and know how to take orders and right. to uh, you know explain why our products are better than our competitors. So this is the nature of the world. Um, it's uh, it's all interconnected. Wow. Yeah, that's true. We can't just 
sell our own products to ourselves. Not <laughs> I mean, if we want to compete nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I think Boeing sells 90% of its airplanes internationally. It's, it's a wow. huge, I don't know what, what the exact yeah. number is, but it's the major, overwhelming majority of them. And that is true, I think, for products of high tech, products of American agriculture. Um, you know, the markets for most of our agricultural products are international as well, because that's where more people are. Right, we're five percent. Ninety-five percent are elsewhere. A, a lot of a lot of the service economy of Seattle and the you know Western Washington and California are services that you know service tourists and financial operations and you know hotels and you know medical services and so on. And all of these only depend partially on the domestic market. Wow. So it's um it's the way the world has been for some time, but all these forces are accelerating, you know, because actually it, it works out better this way. The economy works better when it's a competitive force. Um, yeah, I may have you on again to just talk about globalization, right? Because that's a that's a topic that's super interesting by itself. A way to think about this as well is just think about professional sports. Okay, Ichiro, <laughs> right? <laughs> he yeah. just happened to be the best. Uh, and if you look at the, you know, Ichiro, the right fielder for the Seattle Mariners, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Japanese, he, he, unfortunately, he's gone. Yeah, he's, but if you, he's but, older if you now. but if you look at a lot of the great talent in baseball, they're born in the Dominican Republic. They're yep. born in other Venezuela, other Latin American countries. Uh, usually, Cubans come here and play professional baseball. This is true in basketball. This is not not in football, but in many other sports. Look at symphony orchestra. Orchestras. Look at many American uh, Fortune 500 companies. Increasingly, the leaders as well as the uh, technicians in these uh, fields are people who come from other countries as well. It's so rich that we have to save that okay, one because sure. we're going to talk about immigration today, okay. but we're going to do this again later and just talk okay. about globalization. Okay. And the sports analogy is particularly good. So we're talking about the fiscal impact of immigrants on all of our various industries in the United States, but surely there is also some cost on social services and stuff like right. that. Right. You can quantify it. Right. <laughs> what is that impact? Like what do they put in? What do they take out? Et cetera. That turns out to be a very, very complicated question. Okay. And so I'm going to have to talk for a few minutes Please. about this Please because do. we have a very complex an educational uh, system, and uh, it takes a while to sort them out because depending on how you count it and what assumptions you make, you come up with different answers. So there's both what we call sort of short-term this-year accounting, and then there's the other a sort of long-term horizon. So let me okay. sort of compare the two of those. So when immigrants arrive, they work in the American economy, and by and large, they pay taxes because the taxes you know, are evident when they, when they buy goods and services. Most of them work, in a, uh, the, even if they're here uh, without papers, uh, they work, uh, their wages are deducted for Social Security and taxes and so on. Right, so, so they they're pay paying a, sales tax, and if they're hired by Dole, Dole is paying payroll taxes, exactly. whether or not they have papers. Right, right. Okay. Uh, you know, people who do gardening at my house, at your house, they care for your children. They for the record, for your, we don't, I don't have a gardener. Okay. Well, <laughs> not yet. Well, well but, but some, well, you may not have a gardener, but a lot of times you might have to have your trees trimmed right, <laughs> in sure. your yard or hedges worked or other kinds of things. Those are disproportionately, so those services are manned sure. by uh, immigrants, elder care, you know, nursing yeah. homes, child care, disproportionately nannies coming from other kinds of countries. So they provide a whole range of services. But on average, um, there's, a, there's the highly skilled immigrant population, but there's also a lot who are at the low-wage economy. Because of their lower wages, they pay less in taxes than the average native-born American. Yeah, They also have children, and their children... I'm going to focus on education because that's the largest single source of expenditure that we make upon... Public schools. Mo most, most people in general... Uh, the big drivers of the American social support network is health care and uh, education. Those okay. are the two big ones. Even if you pay for these yourself, you're still being subsidized one way or another in both of these, both of these markets by, by various arms of government. Okay. But the big one for immigrants would be education. And they don't have large families, but they have larger families than the native-born population do. So if you calculated in 2016, we took all the taxes, 
paid by immigrants, and then we counted all the benefits that they're receiving, including the average value of schools uh, that their children are receiving education, okay. it turns out that actually they're getting more benefits, primarily education, than uh, taxes that they're putting into the system. Right. But let's, for a moment, let's sort of think about this long term. Well, and that makes sense because... If you're coming in with a family, as you often do when you are an immigrant, because you are you have these children, right. and you're like, I need to provide for them. Right. The average immigrant is not, oh, I'm kind of bored here in Bangladesh. I mean, it's like the type of things that motivate people to leave and move right. across the world are have a lot to do with provision. And so it would make sense. You're going to be doling out a lot of resources to children. Right. First year, year they arrive, right. early couple years. But now you're saying... Let's zoom out a bit. Immigration is not a one year and it just renews every year right. and it's either a plus or minus. Obviously, they're living here. They're, yeah. they're going to have a longer impact. So what happens when we zoom out? Well, when you consider the children of immigrants, all the children of immigrants do better than their parents do educationally, hmm. which means that they wind up in higher paying jobs, which is wind up paying more in taxes than the average child of a native born person does. So if we take Oh, the, you're not you're not saying they end up paying more in taxes than their parents. They end up paying more in taxes than me. Than born here. Yeah, right. I mean, if we just on take, average, yeah. Yes. You know, if we take the children of the native born versus the children of immigrants, the children of the native born on average are going to pay less in taxes than the children of the foreign born by and large because they're going to go into higher paying occupations. This is, so, this so, is amazing. So, so, so if we consider long term, actually it's a net gain for the American economy long term. The well, other, okay, I just, okay, so <laughs> this is insane. It's not that Mexicans are flying over the border and taking the low paying jobs when we when we count it all if we think long term immigrants are coming in t and they're ending up with good jobs well i mean both things are obviously the, happening the, yeah. the immigrants themselves are diverse right some of them are at the high end some are at the middle a lot are at the bottom so they pay less in taxes right but the children of immigrants even the children of gardeners and nannies and so on they do relatively well they go to colleges at slightly higher rates than the children of the native born do they're working hard you know their parents are are pushy <laughs> you're saying okay you're saying that if i had so we had a housekeeper who was a mexican right. immigrant in california when i was growing up my family hired her and many of our friends hired her. She kind of became a, a part of the friend group. You're saying her children who are my age or my little brother's age are more, they will on average go to a better school than I will go to. They're, if we're it, all averaged the, out. The, the, yes, you have to take not an individual example. But of course, if you because take if over you're the, hiring a housekeeper, oh, oh, you probably are in an upper class and, and whatever. And there's also what we call stratification. In other words, the children of affluent people do better than the children of Exactly. Right. So if we net out all of these other kinds of things, being the child of immigrant is a plus factor. In other words, they, they push their children, you know, because they're struggling, they're striving. And so the children of their immigrants um, try a little bit harder in school. And if you ask most kids who are in school and they look at the kids who come there who don't speak English, within a few years, most of them are you know, doing pretty good in school. So uh, that wouldn't happen right away, especially with a language barrier, but give them four or five years well, in the school system. Just look at spelling bees. I don't know if you've, okay. if you've noticed in the National Spelling Bees for the last 20 years. I'm not uh, a huge spelling bee aficionado, they, but... The children from India have dominated National Spelling Bees for the last 20 years. Okay. Um, science fairs. I don't know if you've ever been to a high school science fair in recent years. Disproportionately, look at the high school orchestra. You know, the ones who are playing, you know, the violins and the other yeah. string instruments and so on. Disproportionately... The children of foreign-born parents as well. You know, yeah. So they're they're really you know pushing the envelope in terms of doing this. It's not because they're smarter than anybody else, but they just realize that um, if they're going to make it in American society, that no, no one's going to hand it to them. So they they they're just trying. Now, by the way, their yeah. children will be the third generation. They're just normal Americans. You know, this immigrant ethic kind of wears off. It wears off by the third generation. Okay, right. Well, that's what we think. We okay. actually don't know about that. But the other thing is that now, if we turn to the federal government. These are what I've been talking about before, sort of state and local government, the taxes and the schooling that's primarily local. So much of what the federal government 
government does. Uh, they do two big things. One is that they do national defense. Uh, they pay interest on the national debt. A lot of what we call fixed cost kinds of things. Okay. And so the more people we have, the broader population that debt is shared amongst. There's a lot of the... Um, uh, federal funds go for Social Security. We have a, a pay-as-you-go system, so a lot of the money that comes in for Social Security and Medicare actually goes out to pay current recipients at the present time. Right. Most of the elderly in the country are native-born white Americans, and they are receiving a lot of these benefits. A lot of the immigrants are sort of paying in, so they're paying into the federal taxation system. Okay. The benefits go back out to through Medicare and Social Security to a lot of the elderly, which you know, they've earned and they, they sure. should receive that. And they're also sharing the burden of a lot of these fixed national expenditures. In other words, we have $320 million now. If we have another million immigrants next year, we're not going to adjust the veterans hospitals or the national defense or anything else because we have a few more immigrants. It's kind of a fixed cost for the country as a right. whole. And that's okay. shared amongst a larger population. So actually they're lowering the average cost that we all pay for federal government expenditures. Wow. Maybe I could just try to summarize these issues because they are complex. Yeah, please. They are controversial. Not every expert agrees with each other. But the general story that I'm telling you would probably be the overwhelming consensus position of economists and sociologists who have studied these issues. There'll always be somebody who says, well, let me assume this, let me assume that, and they will come up with a slightly different interpretation, maybe a negative interpretation of the impact of immigrants on American society. Summarize that view, though. So just, just give it back to us, because that's a lot of information to take in. So we're talking about in a one-year period, like year for mm -hmm, year, mm -hmm. and then we're talking in the long term. And so just to summarize, year to year. Year to year benefit at the state and local level, immigrant families receive more benefits than they pay in taxes because they have more children on right. average than the average American and they have lower incomes. Yeah. However, long term, the education of the children of immigrants is like an investment. Yeah. You know, we invest in things not because we want to spend out the money, but we think in the long term we're going to get a benefit back. And that's the way education works in general, and that's the way the education uh, of immigrant children is, because they're going to stick around, they're going to you know, do well in the economy, they're going to pay taxes and um, uh, contribute to the, the overall good. And in fact, statistically, they're going to do better than their native-born counterparts. Not overwhelmingly so, but on average, yes, yes, yeah. it's 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 a it's a positive force. And in the federal system, we have a state and local taxation system, which is by and large sales tax. We don't have income tax in Washington State and property yeah. taxes. And then at the federal level, it's almost exclusively the uh, federal income tax. And there, it's basically that they're paying much more in taxes to the federal government than they're getting back because yeah. um, they don't. there's no benefits from the federal government coming back to individuals except the Social Security and Medicare. And by the time they are old enough to receive Social Security and Medicare, they will be that older generation and there will be new immigrants who are coming in who are paying in disproportionately Correct. to pay out those benefits. Right. For immigration to be successful, it has to be continued. In other words, if we bring yeah. in a lot of immigrants as we did from you know the beginning of the country up to the 1920s and then stopped it, as we did by the 1960s, a lot of the immigrants were very old, and then, you know they were disproportionately receiving lots of benefits. Right. But if we keep immigration at its current levels, it's about a million a year. It's about a third of one percent per year of the American okay. population coming. If we keep it at that level, yes, this is a thing that we'll continue to give for the foreseeable future. It's completely sustainable, is what you're it, saying. It, it is sustainable. Yes. You're saying there's no data-driven reason to halt immigration in America. Your personal opinion. Immigrants are not perfect human beings. <laughs> in fact, sure. there are probably some immigrants who are you know, reprehensible individuals who uh, have cheated other people. And there's a certain fraction who are in federal jails and state and local jails. And they deserve to be there. But the rate of incarceration, the uh, rate of almost all the kind of negative behaviors we want to associate is considerably lower than that of the native-born population. So we cannot say, if we stopped immigration tomorrow, would there be fewer murders in the country? Would there be there fewer automobile accidents caused by immigrants? Well, if you don't have any, you know, you wouldn't have any consequences. Sure. But if you had to, um, you know, calculate on an average basis, uh, there, there's 
it's generally a positive economic social force. And then there are many other dimensions that are not simply economic. Yeah, let's talk about those. Because recently there was the six American Nobel Prize winners. Okay. All six of them were foreign-born immigrants. Not a one of them was born in America. Well, they, they add diversity to the country. Uh, diversity sometimes for many people is disconcerting. They're hearing people speak foreign languages or English with a foreign language. Uh, sometimes they need translation services and hospitals and the public uh, safety yeah. system and so on. So there are certain kinds of inconveniences that some citizens have to pay by having them here. On the other hand, <laughs> when we go out to eat now, we can say, well, do we want to have Chinese or Vietnamese? Or I understand there's a new Cambodian restaurant that's kind of interesting. That's kind of a plus uh, for American yeah. society. We have lots of people who have uh, knowledge. You know, if I want to take a vacation to Mexico or Japan, there might be somebody in your neighborhood who can sort of take, oh yeah, my cousin is there, be there and happy to help and show you around. Or yeah. perhaps maybe, you know, we, I, we can share learning the language, doing other kinds of things. So there's a lots of non-economic aspects that I think benefits and broadens American culture by having people of diverse backgrounds together. Now, diversity isn't simply people from uh, overseas. It's true domestically as well. Having people move around the United States and having social mobility from people from all uh, walks of life interact with each other. I think we generally think that this is a positive thing in our lives. Not to say again that some people may not be uncomfortable uh, with people who are outsiders. What we have to remember is that ever since the Republic was founded, people have been worried about people from coming from other countries. You know, in the late part of the uh, 1700s, Benjamin Franklin and others were worried about the Germans who were coming here and going mm. to change the country in ways that they thought was uh, not what they wanted to be. In the 1840s, there was something called the Know Nothing Party, and they were worried about the Irish who were coming here and dragging the society downward. In the 1880s through the 1920s, it was the Italians and the Greeks and the Poles and so on. All those jokes, all the Polish jokes, and those all come from that era. So, so we have to realize that our ancestors, too, very few of us are descendants of people who were here before the Republic was founded. Most of us came in as the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, or the great-great-grandchildren of immigrants who were disliked and despised and put down when they first arrived. But they stayed, they contributed, and they're now part of American society. Now, most of us have forgotten all of that, but that's what America is. We're a country that brings people from other countries, from other, all places of the world who don't find sufficient opportunities there, and we give them a chance here. And I think they, it's made it a stronger country. Now, I don't know if your study covered this, but a hot topic is Muslim immigrants mm -hmm. in this election year. Can you break down some of the numbers as it specifically relates to Muslims? It's a very small number. I don't have the exact number. There are native-born Muslims, Muhammad yeah. Ali. <laughs> uh, right. There are a lot of the Muslims who come to the United States, come from South Asia, from Pakistan and Bangladesh and India. Right. Uh, many of them come from uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. There's a small Chinese Muslim community. And there's some share of them that come from the Middle East as well. Now, there's also a lot of people from the Middle East who are not Muslims. We have a very large... Um, it's called a, sort of the Syrian Christian community. It's a very large population in Detroit and in California, the Iranian uh, community as well. So not all the people from what we think of as sort of the Islamic Middle East. The, the, the geographical region and the religious are, uh, are different. Yeah. Um, I think by and large, the Muslim population that's come to the United States uh, that are immigrants are primarily ones who have come here for higher education. So okay. they so they generally tend to be relatively successful in American society. They're you know they're sort of like Asian immigrants in that way. They're drawn here by opportunities, and they're not um, you know they're not participating in working class pursuits in American society. I, I suspect that I don't know that there's a, a broad variety of religiosity amongst the Muslim population as well. There are some who are very fervent, uh, but they're just like every other group. They have a lot of people who you know, wouldn't know a mosque if they saw it. Uh, right. you know, their parents might have been Muslim, but you know, it's not a religion that they participated in their day-to-day -day life. Right. Now, it's true that there's a lot of turmoil in the Middle East now, and there are some people from there who are here, and there are a number of incidences that have happened in American society of which they were um, responsible for. 
Now, some of those were foreign-born students, the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, Some of the other cases have been native-born Muslim Americans in, in, in various places as well. So they weren't necessarily the immigrants. They might have been the children of immigrants. Yeah. My reading of it is that the people who are going to do really crazy things they do it because they're frustrated. In other words, they don't feel like life has treated them fair and they're, they may be predisposed to violence, but they're angry at something. Very few people who are fully employed uh, in productive careers feel that they have an opportunity, their children have a stake in American society, feel that way. So my reading of most Muslim Americans, like most immigrants in general, they're grateful for the opportunities they have in American society. They, they feel that this is a land of opportunity and they want to contribute to society. Now, there are some who don't, but I think it's a very, very small fraction. And statistically, the numbers bear out that feeling of yours. Yes, I think European countries where the barriers are much, much greater and it's much, much harder to find employment, get into the university and so on, they have deeper grievances uh, that are built in there than American society. Actually, most countries um, look to the United States as a country with successful integration of immigrants into American society, much, much better than almost all European countries, much better than Asian countries that find it very, very difficult to accept immigrants into their society, like countries like Japan and Korea. They basically have very, very little immigration. Well, you've anticipated my transition to Europe. What kind of obstacles is Europe facing in this new age of European Union immigration, where there's easy transit between EU countries, and there's such a large refugee crisis geographically much closer in Syria and other places? What what are unique challenges to Europe that we don't face in the U.S.? I mean, we're very close to Latin America, the Caribbean and Mexico and so on. They're much closer to North Africa and the Middle East. So generally, migrants like everybody else generally traverse the shortest distance between where they're coming from and where they want to go. Sure. But both of us have poor countries on their periphery. Added to that, of course, in the Middle East, it's not just desperate poverty, but it's war. You know, so people are fleeing uh, violence uh, that are coming there. So the refugee problem is a, a minority of international migration, but it's a very important component of that. Uh, A lot of the recent waves of African migrants to the United States were refugee populations from East Africa, from Eritrea, from Ethiopia, from Somalia, uh, other countries as well. But that's also true in Europe. So the numbers are huge. Well, to, to clarify, the numbers of people who need a safe place to live are huge, but the numbers of them coming to America are not huge. No. In 2015, Germany accepted 1.1 million refugees. In 2015, America accepted 69,000 refugees. Right. That's a much smaller number. I mean, and Germany is uh, fifth the size of the United States or something like that? Well, the other thing is that there are other demographic forces that are affecting the population in addition to immigration. The most important one is the birth rate's down. The birth rate is down even further in Europe than it is in the United States, which means we are rapidly aging populations. So Germany is actually, from natural increase, it's actually becoming smaller every year than it was the year before. Wow. And the proportion of the population and the working ages who are going to do the jobs to pay the taxes and so on is actually decreasing as well. Many of those people are passing into the retirement years. So actually, Germany in particular, but most European societies, is actually short of workers at the present time. Most Hmm. of the immigrants, particularly from Syria, are often young men in the working ages. Some of them are highly skilled, and uh, they can be productive workers in the economy. Now, they have to learn the language, they have to become familiar with the local routines and so on, but the refugee arrivals is a crisis. They have to deal with all the immediate humanitarian issues, but properly integrated into these societies, um, they could contribute to the society. There's a very large Turkish population in Germany. Many of them are second and third generation, and they face problems of adjustment, but they're all fluent in German. They work at all levels of the society. In, in Turkey, if you go out to, I mean, in Germany, if you go out to a nice restaurant, it's often a Turkish restaurant. That's yeah. sort, of, sort of the popular go-to food for you know, uh, young people. So is the U.S. more or less logistically prepared to handle immigrants than, say, Germany? Well, I think we are, it's much easier for immigrants in American society, in part because we have less of a welfare state. We don't provide mm. a lot of social services to Americans, much less than they do in European societies. Everything from 
healthcare to housing to daycare and elder care, all these kinds of things that are sort of written in to many of the uh, social contracts of European societies we don't have here. So immigrants have to fend more for themselves here than they do in European societies, and they're more costly to European societies than they are here because we don't provide these services to American citizens. So this seems like a good little nugget to zone in on or to zoom in on this being the depolarized podcast. This is where progressive views on things don't necessarily just fit together so clearly. The argument that it sounds like you're making is, look, because we have a more right, more conservative welfare state than the more progressive countries of Europe, we are better situated to receive immigrants. Well, immigrants can find jobs almost anywhere in American society, in part because employers don't pay a lot of these extra benefits to them. Uh, They can dismiss them more easily. They don't have to go through lots of red tape. So employers and workers have a harder time of adjustment. Now they get, on average, lower wages here and fewer benefits. Um, But if you're a red state voter and you're just like, I'm so sick of everyone on the left telling me, accept immigrants, accept refugees, raise taxes, provide welfare for everybody. You're here to say, look, sir or ma'am, the fact that our country does not have such a high welfare state actually makes us logistically capable of accepting immigrants and refugees. And that's one of the plus sides of the fact that the conservative wing in America has accomplished these things. Right. We don't provide a whole lot of services to immigrants, and we don't provide many services to Americans either. But by the, comparison, by, yeah. By, 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 by comparison, either. So that's one of the reasons our taxes are generally lower here right. than they are in most European uh, countries. I just love that. I just want to emphasize it because what I'm trying to do is help people get out of their own echo chambers. And one thing that's good to get out of your echo chamber is to acknowledge that the policies of the opposite party have made something that your party wants more doable. Mm -hmm. That's a really good moment to look across the aisle and go, Hey, I may personally want more services to be provided. Let's say I'm Mm -hmm. further left and I wish that we had more of a Scandinavian welfare state, but I can at least acknowledge to my libertarian and GOP Mm -hmm. friends. Well, This other thing I want that I think is a human rights issue is more possible because of what your party has fought for. That's like a genuine moment of crossing party lines, and it's making my heart full right now. Well, I agree. I think that's uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, something that both sides could agree on. Can we try and find anything else like that? (laughs) Can you think of something from your research? Another true thing about America because of the influence of the conservative side that makes some of these liberal pushes more possible. One of the, in, in the field of immigration... Yeah, or even if it's related, just well, because you know a lot more than me. Well, immigrants tend to be very entrepreneurial. They often tar- start small businesses. Uh, we see this in... Um, you know, the restaurant sector. But this is true across the board in many, many other areas as well. And so if you go to New York or Los Angeles, many times the green grocers are being run by Korean Americans. Uh, Travel agencies are often staffed by Koreans and many other groups as well. So they tend to be very business oriented, helping um, to rejuvenate the economy. Uh, I think in uh, Detroit and some other states, they're trying to do all they can to encourage small entrepreneurship. And immigrants are sort of a key to the entrepreneurial development of inner cities and many other places. They're, all, they're often too willing to go where you know, big business won't. And I feel like I've read recently that countries like Italy are facing an entrepreneurship crisis Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the welfare state and how high the taxes are. Many entrepreneurs are leaving Italy and moving to other countries to start their businesses. Right. So there's another moment where we can say high five across the aisle. Small small business is a rough road. I mean, it's really high risk. A lot of Small businesses go bankrupt. My father was a small businessman. It was just, you know, it was very, very difficult life. People had to work you know, long hours. And uh, immigrants, because they have fewer connections, are often willing to do these kinds of jobs. Um, Many times their children are not. So I know a lot of the children (laughs) of immigrants, you know, their parents expect them, you know, to come home from college and work in the, you know, mom and pop grocery store. And their goal is to get out of that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I had plenty of those friends going through those years. 
I'm not ready to move beyond this because right. this golden moment of aisle crossing high fiving is just got me excited. Can you mind for something else here? Well, the other thing is family structure. Um, okay. You know, one of the things that happens in the United States and many other industrial countries is that um, you know we have this you know belief that everyone should follow their own star, <laughs> which means in many cases, if you know if a relationship isn't working out, you know you split. If uh, children uh, have to be raised by one parent, usually the mother, uh, oftentimes the father doesn't pay to support them. Uh, children often disproportionately have adverse effects from one parent families. Not all of them, but many of them have these things. Yeah. Uh, and immigrants in general tend to be much more family oriented. They're often coming from countries where you know divorce rates are low. They tend to be more religious. They tend to be more conservative on a lot of the traditional family values. Yeah, so interesting. Now, of course, once they become Americanized, well, they're probably going to pick up all the American habits as well. They're going to get all uh, our bad habits. The, yeah. other, the other one is um, health-related issues. Immigrants are usually selected amongst the healthier populations of the countries from which they come, so they're often young adults and relatively healthy. Right. They oftentimes don't have a lot of the, what we might call, bad habits <laughs> that come with affluence eating fast food, not exercising. And these are uh, these are costly habits. A- alcohol consumption, yeah. smoking. Smoking is probably the single most important one. So generally, for most measures of healthcare, not only questions about subjective health, but also objective measures of blood pressure and illnesses and so on, the immigrant populations tend to be healthier than their native-born counterparts, particularly when they first arrive. After they've been here for five or 10 years, they begin to have higher rates of obesity and smoking and lots of other kinds of things that Americans have. But generally, they represent a smaller share of the healthcare budget than their numbers would suggest. Circling back, though, for a moment to the brief argument about Mm -hmm. family values, quote unquote, being higher among immigrant families, it's a moment where the left has to concede to the right, broadly speaking, these values are important. They're important for rearing children. Yeah. And, so, and therefore, they're important for society. Exactly, exactly. So children who don't get a lot of investment by society or by their families often have adjustment problems growing up. I mean, even amongst those who make it, you know, they still have a deficit. You know, Barack Obama talks about the void in his life. His, his memoir was entitled Dreams of My Father, whom he never really knew. Yeah. So even those who are the most successful still have a problem because their families were not there when they needed them. When every adult's looking after themselves, who's looking after the children who have nobody except society and teachers and people who are interested in them, and often it's relatives. So to play out a mini drama here, you have Joe Conservative saying, it's about personal responsibility. I don't want someone coming over here and demanding services that I pay taxes with my hard-earned money. And then you have you know, Dana progressive (laughs) countering and saying family values aren't that important. It's all economics or whatever. But then you have the data and you have the immigrant populations coming in and they are proving that the conservative man is right, that family values matter because they have stronger family connections and they outperform native born people. And they're also proving Dana progressive right that we should let them in. The data on immigrants, what I'm getting at, what it seems to me is, it's not just a big silver star for everybody Mm -hmm. on the left. It is actually affirming many deeply held beliefs on the right. It's just not affirming the fear of the immigrants coming. Well, immigrants tend to be fairly conservative on almost all of these dimensions. Yeah. And they tend to be, you know, they conform to the laws, they conform to family expectations, they invest more in their children, they take more care of their elderly as well. So when when elderly parents have problems, oftentimes they care for them in their home rather than sending them off to nursing homes totally. and so on. So yeah. there's a lot of these traditions that are really valuable. Uh, now, sometimes families can't do this if you've got not enough money and sure. both husband and wife are working. Sometimes you can't care for grandma. Um, but these these are these are important. You know, families are really central to the society. And I, I would hope that that would be an issue that would unite the left and the right. I mean, uh, anything that we can right. do to strengthen families. I mean, uh, this is this is really at the core of society is having strong families. Because if you have strong families, you're going to have stronger children. And if stronger children means a brighter future, you know, because uh, they're going to be the adults of the next generation. Well, there definitely are arguments, maybe from the far left, that... 
would totally go counter to that. Individual autonomy and just my freedom of choice, whatever that should be, these are the paramount values of a modern society. I mean, I have for sure heard those arguments explicitly or implicitly. Aren't those more libertarian than liberal? I mean, I think that the liberal point mm. of view would be we're our brother's keeper. Yeah, maybe that is more libertarian. So that'd be like kind of far right. <laughs> well, the far right well, and the yeah, far left sometimes different. meet each other. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> they go all the way around the circle. Right, yeah, right, and yeah, they yeah, are and, across and, you know, the way. Uh, you know, I think one of the one of the things of modern thought is that we we should all have personal freedom. But the other part is we all have collective responsibilities. Yeah. And who is going to decide you know, what my freedoms are, what my responsibilities are. And we would, like, we would like individuals to be nurtured by society to accept responsibilities for each other. But that doesn't mean that everybody has to be ordered to do these things. I think this is when lots of people find a problem with the state saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. I think we want to grant people personal freedom, but at the same time, we want to remind them of what they should be doing. And I think this is what good parenting is all about too. I guess what I'm trying to say is that Sometimes people on the right feel like the bleeding heart left is ignoring principles that are more foundational than sort of the open-hearted, open-handed, let them all come in. Mm-hmm. You, shouldn't, you should feel so guilty about not caring about the poor. And they feel like they're not being heard mm-hmm. when they say, look, look, maybe that's a conversation we need to have. But these values are being lost in our society and stuff is breaking down. Mm. And I, what I find so interesting about the data on the immigrant families and the immigrant populations is they prove the larger point that the conservative is trying to make about the family values while simultaneously proving the quote bleeding heart argument that the liberal is making. <laughs> you ought to let them in and you ought to have empathy for them. And also, they do a better job, statistically, of upholding the type of family values that the conservative feels like is getting lost in the discussion in the guilting of the right for not wanting them here. Right. I think that sometimes we have stereotypes of the other. Of <laughs> so, course, I so, think we do, so, Charles. So, so the conservatives have stereotypes of the bleeding heart liberal, which may in fact be more of a stereotype than an accurate description sure, of their of point of view and vice versa. So yeah. my feeling is if people actually talk to each other, they would realize that they actually agree on more things than not. Pardon the crudeness of this question, but how much immigration is too much immigration? <laughs> I'm not sure that's a question that could be answered okay. uh, scientifically or even in a policy point of view. I mean, it's a, it's a product of supply and demand. Yeah. Um, many American employers have a large demand for labor that cannot be met domestically. And there are a lot of forces around the world. America represents a land of opportunity for many people abroad. So I don't think anybody's advocating open borders. You know, right. everybody who wants to come can come. A lot of, um, I don't know what the fraction is, but something like almost half of the people who are coming legally are the spouses and minor children of U.S. citizens. Okay. So they're, you know, they're reuniting families. We're currently getting about a million immigrants uh, from around the world. As a percentage of the American population, that's less than it was, you know, throughout most of American history. So it isn't as though that we're, you know, yeah. at record levels at the present time. In absolute numbers, we are because we're a country of 300 million, 320 million people at the present time. Right. What are some arguments that are given by the left regarding immigration that you think are wrong or misguided? or do damage to their cause? Well, I've never quite thought of it in that way. That's what uh, I'm here for. I, there is a, there's a particular practice that they have in many European countries, and it's more a problem of the countries, but I do not think it helps immigrant integration. Okay. These are many, many Scandinavian countries, and I think German country, and so on, and a lot of the federal aid to education is channeled through religious organizations. Okay. So there's a an allotment that goes to the, you know, to the Lutheran church and an allotment that goes to the Catholic church and other kinds of things. This is also, you know, I, I think it comes through in a variety of other ways in which religion is considered part of the governance of the country. Actually, I think there are state subsidies for religion and so on. Okay. So 
So what happens is the money gets channeled through these religious organizations, and many new immigrants come in and say, well, you know, I'm not Lutheran, I'm not Catholic, you know, it turns out that we're Muslim, and we would like to have some of these funds channeled through you know, having a Muslim teachers association and other kinds of things yeah. in the schools or to help to rebuild a mosque and so on. And my feeling is that um, we ought to have the public sector essentially relatively neutral uh, with regard to people's private lives, the lives of their church, their private associations, and so on. Anybody who wants to do that is fine, but by and large, that ought to be a private matter, not a public matter. And I think it reinforces walls between groups. What America has been successful at is we integrate people from different backgrounds in public institutions like education. And I think yeah. that really brings people together. And sometimes the European system about housing subsidies and school subsidies and so on creates uh, separate networks. So in other words, a common argument on the left is, well, just look at Scandinavia. And right. you're saying there's some serious problems in the way that Scandinavia does a lot of this stuff. Right. I think that um, sometimes they treat immigrants as though that they ought to be religious and they're, you know, and provide some of the aid through religious institutions. And so immigrant communities that are primarily secular become religious because that's the way to get more benefits. Interesting. And that doesn't, that doesn't help bringing people together. Are there any arguments coming from the left that sound emotionally compelling, but are not based in the facts? Well, I think if you had to have one argument from, you know, I usually don't think about it entirely in political uh, terms sure. here, would be the humanitarian impulse. You know, okay. you know, everybody who's in harm's way, we ought to bring in. Now, I don't believe that anybody on the left has advocated that, but I think that may be a perception of people on the more conservative side that if we had, if the liberals had their way, they'd be admitting everybody who's in any adverse situation, a war zone or any other humanitarian crisis. Yeah. I think most of the people who are in these circumstances, they don't really want to leave their home country. They would rather, you know, whether it's an earthquake or a war and so on, they'd rather have the problem settled there yeah. and be able to stay there. Some of them may want to come, but most of them would probably prefer to stay where their families and other people are. So oftentimes it might be better to channel more benefits to the places where people are in strife to solve the problems there rather than to encourage them just to be resettled here. You know, if, if there's a Syrian war, well, let's bring them all here. Maybe the more important thing would be to stop the Syrian war. And that would allow many people to sort of say where they would prefer to be. And so if someone on the right pipes into a Facebook discussion and says, look, I'm all for the welfare of people, but helping them solve their civil war should be logically prior to inviting them over here, you're saying that that could be a really good argument. Or maybe maybe we could do both. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know, sure. For the people who are displaced, whose homes have been destroyed, are, their displaced, yeah. are gone, parents have died, and we have orphans there, you know, and their relatives are here. I think we ought to have a humanitarian opportunity to reunite families of people who are displaced by war. On the other hand, to the extent that uh, we can help to encourage economic development and opportunities abroad, totally. we ought to do that, not solely by ourselves, but the rest of the industrial world. We could invest in lots of places that are, you know, for which the most of the refugees are fleeing. Most refugees are involuntary migrants. They did not sure. you know, choose to come. Right. The ones who choose to come are, by and large, the high-tech, uh, highly educated group. Those are the ones who are, you know, who contribute the most to American society, but they're also the ones who are most uh, on the voluntary scale. Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is we need a balanced view of all of this. We should seek to help in ways we can with the problems that are happening there. Also, we should have a reasonable policy of letting people in for whom it makes sense. Right. I think that actually this this problem has been solved several times. Okay. <laughs> but then it falls apart. You know, there was a there was a what they call a um, balanced immigration policy that came in under George W. Bush, and a number of uh, conservatives and liberals came together and they came up with a plan, partially to legalize some of the people who are here, at least a pathway to citizenship. Yeah. You know trying to strengthen the border and have more restrictions on people coming in. It passed, and then it came to the House of Representatives, and they said, well, you know, this is a winning argument in election. So they wanted to have zero compromise. And so for them, having no deal was better than having a balanced deal. It's very difficult to make a compromise in public, because then everybody is looking over their shoulder and trying to label them as giving in to the other side. Sure. When sometimes you have to lock some of these contentious people in a room and say, you can't come out until you come up with an agreement, and then we're going to um, 
you know, we're going to review it, but if it's a balanced view, then we'll go forward with it. So I don't, I don't think for most of the great problems in the world, you know, whether it's solving the Israeli-Palestinian deal, whether it's solving immigration crisis, how to deal with refugees, how to deal with uh, expanding educational opportunity, we basically know the outlines. <laughs> the problem is arriving at a public policy that people will agree to in public. Then as voters and as members of that society, what does it behoove us to do? To allow people to talk about complex, controversial issues in public and be willing to compromise almost yeah. all issues. I mean, generally, societies are not as smart as some individuals are. <laughs> generally, public yeah. uh, politics, we sort of muddle through. <laughs> you know, we don't take this issue or that issue. We sort of try to figure out something that most people agree upon. We're not going to raise taxes through the roof. On the other hand, we're not going to make taxes disappear. Can we find something reasonable in the middle? Immigration, we're not going to have open borders. We're not going to have zero immigration. But can we arrive at something that most people on all sides can live with? Yeah. And I think those are, those are compromises that benefit the country and, you know, I think would be welcomed by most Americans. Maybe what voters need to do is share the stories they read that show their candidates or their elected officials making excellent compromises. I mean, and we start cheerleading them for that rather than saying, oh, you know, I always knew Hillary wasn't progressive enough, or I always knew, right. I right. always knew Rubio would sell out to whatever. Right. Like maybe instead we say, hey, look, this guy compromised with this woman and something really great got done. Everyone well, share this story. You're, you're never going to get anything done if you're going to insist upon a maximalist kind of public policy. Yeah. You know, because, you know, you generally need to get a majority and the majority isn't always, you know, on the fringe. Um, right. So you need to find something somewhere in the middle. And I think immigration, like many other contentious issues, has a reasonable middle and the way to get there has been evident for a long, long time. Well, thank you, Charles, Dr. Hirschman, so much for this time. Okay, thank you. Thank you guys for listening as always. Next week, look forward to Robert P. Jones. Follow him on Twitter in the meantime to get a little taste of what you're going to hear. And you can follow me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H, depolarizedpodcast.com. And we have that Facebook discussion group that's growing and has really been a pretty beautiful place for people to process out articles and views and whatnot. So thank you to everyone who's participating there and feel free to join us. See you next week.